0: Singaporeans are crazy about food, but what exactly is the nature of this mad love? And what does it say about our culture's past, present and future? I'm Christopher Tan, your host for this episode. As a food writer, I chronicle food, culture and heritage for many publications and for my own cookbooks. You may know me as the author of The Way of Kwe, which was named Book of the Year at the 2020 Singapore Book Awards. Kwe is a Southeast Asian term for a huge variety of sweet and savoury bites, Iconic to food heritage across the ASEAN region. And I wrote The Way of Kuei to encourage more of us to take up kuei making as a personal and family activity. And this was motivated by a larger question. As more and more of us approach food as cosmopolitan curators of Instagrammable encounters, is it still possible to cultivate a food perspective deeply rooted in our unique heritage and personal experiences? Do we see ourselves as creators of a living food culture, or merely consumers and rehashers of trends and nostalgia? Does the way we engage with food and food culture also reveal how we engage with the larger spheres of Singaporean society, culture, and mores? Today, I'll be speaking to three writers who have used food as both theme and trope to find out how they think and what they think about this question. Let me go to our first guest, Anne who who is one of the editors of Food Republic, a Singapore Literary Banquet. This anthology, published in 2020, features over 100 literary explorations of Singapore's food and food culture.
1: Hi everyone, it's great to be here.
0: Next up is Melissa De Silva, the author of Others Is Not a Race, a multi-genre collection about Eurasian culture in Singapore, that won the Singapore Literature Prize in the Creative nonfiction category in 2018.
2: Hi Chris. Thanks for inviting me and happy to be here.
0: And finally, our third guest is poet and art historian Samuel Lee, whose debut poetry collection, A Field Guide to Supermarkets in Singapore, won the Singapore Literature Prize in 2018
3: for poetry in English. Hi, everyone. Thanks, Chris. I'm excited to talk about food later.
0: All of you, please bottle up your excitement and, and be ready to <laughs> let it out in <laughs> carefully measured doses, okay? Melissa and Samuel's work are both featured in Little Red Comma, a digital showcase for Singapore literature that you can check out on the Esplanade Offstage website. So let me start with Anne. I'm just going to plunge right in here. Mm-hmm. And the introduction to the Food Republic anthology talks about how food has always been a safe space for Singaporeans, something that we all can obsess about and have an opinion about and debate And how intermingled with that debate are usually avenues to explore larger, more meaningful and and potentially more fraught topics. You know, not that food doesn't already have enough to make it fraught these days. Could you share a little bit more about how the idea for the anthology came about and sort of how did you go about sourcing pieces for the book? And how did you decide on the final assortment of pieces in the book?
1: Well, Food Republic began really as Daryl Lim brainwave. He's one of the three editors. So together with Zi Hao Kuang and myself, uh, the three of us, we worked on Food Republic. And I think it occurred to him one day that given how food-obsessed we are as a nation, we just don't have a book that pulls together existing literary interpretations of food in Singapore. And once you ask that question, it becomes undeniable. You know, there's this gap that needs to be filled Not with food necessarily, but with food writing. Mm -hmm. And so when he kind of talked to first Hao Kuang and myself, we immediately knew that this was something that we had to do. But at the same time, once we started to sit down and of course we talked over food, as to what the anthology might look like, we realised there was just so much out there, there was so much in terms of its variety, the way food has so many emotional associations for us that we couldn't exactly impose what we felt it might be. And so we had quite an organic process in coming up with the themes and the interests and the specific kind of like pressure points in the anthology. Mm -hmm. So we had an open call for submissions And at the same time, after kind of whittling it down to 27 pieces, we also went through the archives of Singapore Anglophone writing, and that's quite a bit since the 1950s. So it's a kind of multi-dimensional, intergenerational kind of anthology. So some of the pieces were about food and food places and the histories and the heritage of the food. But on the other hand, we wanted to tap into the kind of psychic and emotional terrain, Mm. what food means in our lives. And so we have food as linked to desire, food as linked to memory, food as linked to ways to imagine the world and imagine how we go about our daily lives.
0: Okay, did you have an idea from the outset that you wanted this much poetry and then this much fiction writing and then this much literary nonfiction? fiction
1: No, in, in fact, we went by how we felt each piece, regardless of genre, spoke to food and mm. how charged those connections were okay. and how richly they imagined their chosen subject, whether it's a food item like durian or avocado, for example, or its chosen kind of terrain. That's what we kind of went with. We knew from the start we didn't just want straightforward descriptions of food per se, but we wanted food to review the broader humanity around it. That's the food republic. And so we left it up to the authors to kind of tell us what the special resonances of that might be.
0: As you went through the winnowing process, was there anything that you all uh, came to realize or came to understand about the ways in which our local writers engage with food? Uh, Were there any commonalities or were there any areas that most writers shied away from? Were there any differences between generations or or classes? Because food can be a very class-related thing.
1: Yeah, so this is interesting because at least on my part, when I did the kind of deep historical and archival dive into looking for food-related pieces, and all three of us did, we realised, ironically, there isn't much direct writing about food in the kind of literary history of Singapore. Maybe we were too busy mm. eating that we don't really have to write <laughs> about it. I, I don't know, that's just my speculation. But there was a kind of noticeable generational shift in the sense that you would have, and this is all in the anthology, you would have pieces like Liang Liu Gyeok's, A Visit to the Wet Market. So fairly realist kind of references to the experiences of food. Mm. But with the submissions we were getting through the open call, there were many pieces that were speculated, that were surreal, that imagine, for example, Stephanie Lee's piece, When the World Ends, You'll Be Eating Hockey and Me. That's a kind of apocalyptic imagining of what food would mean to us when the end of the world comes. And we don't quite see that in kind of earlier generations of writing. So I'm not sure why. Maybe food has just gotten more into our veins and we have started to think and feel with it in ways that are more intangible as the years go by
0: that was an interesting piece I just read that piece yesterday there seemed to be a lot of pent up walk of anger <laughs> in that piece you know <laughs> And I have to ask you, sorry, speaking as a cookbook author, I have to ask you, why were no cookbook authors featured in the anthology?
1: Well, uh-huh. we felt that we would leave the specialist to their specialisation and then, well, it is a literary anthology, so I think...
0: And cookbooks are not literary?
1: Well, we'll have a small debate about that when we get off air,
0: <laughs> I guess. <laughs> no, I should explain, I, I say that, because I've always felt that cookbooks occupy this strange limbo oh, sure. between fiction and nonfiction especially cookbooks these days that tend to have a narrative threaded through them, they kind of are an invitation to imagine food as much as they are a set of directions to making food. And for those cookbooks which are based on the author's family heritage, I feel that uh, they also draw on the same well that many fiction writers and poetry writers draw from. Absolutely, yes. Do you have a favourite among the pieces in the book? Or is that too trivial a question?
1: Oh, I think it's not so much trivial as a difficult question because I wouldn't be able to choose just one. So I'm being very politically correct here. But there are pieces that have stuck with me. So if I could just mention one or two, I would. Yes, please. One example is Amanda Lee Coe's Randy's Retisseries. It's a rather campy piece and I won't spoil the plot for people who haven't read it. But it's one of the ways in which food goes off on an unexpected tangent in the anthology. So the premise of the story is that this man has just had an argument with his girlfriend it's a pretty violent one and he's fed up and he leaves the house and he goes to a roast chicken joint except that the what's on sale are chicks or women and then he finds out they're literally chickens <laughs> with different flavours like southern hickory bell and so on and so forth and what happens next I will leave you to find out in the anthology but there's a way in which food can be very visceral so we eat it we consume it we savour it but there's also a kind of very biological and physical dimension to it that I think some of the authors explore and some of the things that I've read in this anthology will be with me for a long time I think I was going to mention a piece called The Panasonic by Prisanti Ram. And it's one of those heartwarming pieces that really stuck with me because the title of the story is The Panasonic's a Mini Rice Cooker. And it's a short piece. It describes a Singaporean Indian family who is on a tour to the US and they're vegetarian and they're Brahmin. And they didn't know that America is the land of hot dogs and barbecues and they're not going to be able to have their preferred choice of cuisine. So they pack this little mini rice cooker and it's a way in which food opens up these points of tension but which are also points of conversation between cultures. And it's a very generously humorous story but the conclusion, and without spoiling the plot, I jump to the end, is when they realise that food is not necessarily where the home is but in the hands of who makes it Mm. and that's where home is. There was one story that stuck with me as well.
0: That's lovely. I'm glad you mentioned the word visceral. I'm going to circle back around to the viscerality of it in a second. But in mentioning that piece about the Panasonic, obviously that rice cooker was a touchstone, an emotional touchstone for the author. And I want to throw this question to all three of you. Is it always inevitable that any kind of food writing, whether it's Singaporean or from anywhere else, is it inevitable that it slides into something of a nostalgic bent?
2: Well, Chris, I don't it's necessarily always of a nostalgic bent, although I think it seems to often be. <laughs> but I think it can be, in a sense, if one of the finest as such even futuristic, if we are exploring, experimenting, concocting our own permutations of things that have existed before and maybe things that don't yet exist. You know, like for example, people who are very much into the food science of you know, the culinary field, people who do a lot of Culinary experimentation that is very precise, empirical, based on ingredients and chemical reactions, for instance, you know, they could end up creating things which we have not seen or tasted yet.
3: I think I want to add on to what Melissa has said about thinking about the future when you read about food. I'm actually thinking about just basically the format of the cookbook and Mm -hmm. there is a concept of futurity that is embedded within it that you can't escape from because It is always a meal that you are about to make or consume. So in a sense, when you read a cookbook, you're always thinking or having this kind of fantasy about what's next for lunch or dinner, which I find kind of interesting in that maybe I haven't really thought that much about it. And maybe, just maybe in Singapore literature, at least, the dominant mode seems to be that of looking at the past, whether whether a kind of collective past or a personal past. I guess a place of food kind of facilitates that very well because food is so inextricably connected to memory. And I mean, as a writer myself, when I think about food, I also cannot help but connect my experience of food to experiences in the past.
0: What struck me about the pieces in your book, A Field Guide to Supermarkets in Singapore, is how obliquely you approach food in various different ways. And it's not even necessarily always a framing device or the sort of keystone of a piece, but you come at it from a a variety of different angles. And let me just ask you that the, the sort of the settings and then the actual dishes and food items that you mentioned seem to be drawn from a variety of locales and cultural references, you know, from frozen peas to burnt kale to brick oven pizza. And what were you trying to express with these choices in terms of, giving emotional texture or resonance to the whole collection.
3: Right, right. Actually, to be perfectly honest, when I was writing and collecting poems for the collection, I wasn't exactly that aware of how much food went into it. So I guess it's probably a kind of unconscious that... You're in saying, feed me. Right, yeah. (laughs) Like, it just enters the poetry and... Like when I was looking back at my book in preparation for this recording, I realized that almost every poem had like a mention of something edible in it, which really shocked me because it didn't occur to me that that would be (laughs) so present in the work. To go to your question on setting, Mm -hmm. I think it's just a function. I mean, the multiplicity of places that I raise, it's probably a function of how... the poetry from this collection was written in many places i would say so perhaps your mention of brick oven pizza reminded me of maybe a poem that was in the collection called eating organic in new haven so in it i actually mentioned alice waters because back then i was on a program in yale and she is famous for having started this like yale sustainable food initiative Mm. so she started a farm. And it was quite a sizable farm. And the intention of this was to eventually build a sustainable food program that would feed the thousands of college students on campus, which I found kind of wonderful, but also kind of jarring because you would have these amazing food spreads that were full of the organic bounty of New Haven. But on the other hand, you also realize that there's a great inequality in mm. people's access to food in that community if you're not from the college. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, like a sharp disparity came to my attention when I was just walking outside. This was probably after attending a talk that she gave on, on slow foods. Yes. Immediately after that, I was just like trying to get back to my to my dorm. And... Like it's commonplace that there'll be people approaching you for food or or money. And I just thought, wow, the level of, of inequality is also so evident through this banal thing like food.
0: Are there any passages from your book that you would like to share that give us a peek into the
3: food part of your brain? Oh, okay. Maybe I could read prophetic vision of next week's grain consumption patterns. It's a short poem.
0: That's on the Esplanade Offstage website if you want to go and have a look at that. And it's a multimedia presentation of a poem which is very, very interesting the way it's been put together.
3: Yeah. You'll be lamenting the rising price of lentils, and I'll be polishing the rice by hand. There will be steam rising to cloud the air from the yellow pot on the stove, and there will be no time for tossed salad. Relationships will fall apart over missing salt cellar and the sky will be as dark and uncertain as early experiments in a moving image. On Wednesday, 80% of dry land will slip back under the ocean, and our dinner parties will be aborted with haste and irritation. You'll be vegan, and I'll eat my weight in chocolate. There will be no progress found in porridge eating, and we will only find disappointment in undercooked kamut. By the weekend, we will be discovering corn again.
0: What inspired that? What prodded you to write that?
3: I wish I had a very good story for this, but. (laughs) Oh, make one up. (laughs) I think there was a time in my life when I was very interested in grains, as there was a sudden proliferation of different kinds and varieties of it, I noticed in my supermarket. So I did this thing where I would try a different grain every month to bring to work. And. I guess that's the genesis of this poem. Like, every grain was interesting to me. Some I liked more than others, for sure. But every one was an experience. I kind of recommend everyone to try that out.
0: Okay, there's yeah. a slightly melancholy, if not even apocalyptic, aura to the poem. Mm. Any particular reason for that, or am I reading it wrong?
3: Did you say there was an apocalyptic? There was some, just uh, maybe
0: it? something about the cyclical nature of the yeah. grains and the week and what will happen next. And
3: yeah, I think. Perhaps it comes from the fact that it's actually quite an absurd poem. Like, you can't polish <laughs> rice grains by hand. And and like, when 80% of dry land slips under the ocean, yes. things are going to be quite bad. Not just for the agricultural industry, but for everyone. So, yeah, there's definitely a tone of maybe foreboding. Since we're talking
0: about tone, and coming back to the visceral thing, as I was reading through the anthology, I noticed that a lot of the pieces started out in a semi-nostalgic fashion or in a quite a straightforward fashion and then slowly segued into body horror, which is (laughs) not something that most Singaporean readers would immediately associate with food. And as you said earlier, you know, food is is something that we consume. It's something that's very near to us in all dimensions, right? So was that an overt choice that all three of you editors made to include this sort of body horror side of food writing in the anthology or was that just how things evolved?
1: I think it's broader than body horror, but certainly we wanted to include a range of responses to food. And I think perhaps being in Singapore, we associate food with plenitude. There's this slight anxiety around not having enough to eat or not having enough on the plate. But we wanted to also explore impulses and responses that related to perhaps not having enough or having anxieties around food or perhaps even the negation of food as spirituality. So, for example, we have a poem by and Saad about fasting in Ramadan and how that kind of self-negation is also in a sense related to food, but also in refinement of the spirit. We also wanted to explore some of the drives that are related to food. So this is in relation to your question about body horror, but sometimes there can be such a thing as too much food, I guess. It can be jalak, you know, when you eat too much, or it's like, <laughs> you know, you eat chicken rice 100 days or something like that. I mean, just to give an example, there's a poem by Jolin Tan, which is called titled "Outpour," and it's about the rhythmic movements of the esophagus, so the body in that sense. But it's also about being bulimic and having that very, very troubled relation to food. So we wanted to explore how food. Yeah, it is a safe zone. It's a safe space for talking about connections and talking about relationships externally. But food can be a very personal and troubled relation for some people as well so i think we wanted to acknowledge that humane side of it too
0: so it's a safe space to talk about potentially queasy things
1: yeah without throwing up necessarily but you know <laughs> it's a kind of maybe uh, last point or point that i observed about putting food republic together i think there are certain dishes or there are certain kinds of food that have an outsized presence in our food landscape one of which is durians for example And I was just looking through the collection today and there are no less than three separate pieces on durians across Mm -hmm. the generations. And there are also pieces that speak to each other. So I think there is something to be said for food having not just a very real presence, but a continuous presence, a kind of dialogue across the years. Mm. Not just, I guess, as tradition, but it's very deeply embedded in our subconscious and that shows up in the writing when you try to curate something like this, which is a great part of doing it.
0: Melissa, I was just reading the piece that you did for Little Red Comma on the Esplanade Offstage website, The Gift, which mentions pineapple tarts. And in my book, The Way of Kui, I wrote about how pineapple tarts are a very multicultural item that sort of embody the history of colonialism and migration and sort of intermingling our cultures in Southeast Asia. For those of you who have never had a pineapple tart, a pineapple tart is a confection with a butter shortbread base and then a pineapple jam in the middle, which may be spiced or unspiced, and they can be open or they can be closed. And they are a truly cosmopolitan, we call them kueh tart, of course, because the butter pastry originally comes from the Dutch. The pineapples are from South America and they were brought to our part of the world by the Portuguese and the Spanish. And then the spices and the pineapple jam are from Indonesia. So they are a very multifaceted dish that many communities make. The Chinese make them, the Paranakans make them, the Malays make them, the Eurasians make them. And Melissa, you have a memory of your grandma making pineapple tarts that you put into the gift.
2: Yeah, that's right. It was a visual and very aromatic memory.
0: Could you share with us that little passage that you wrote?
2: Yeah, sure. So... This is from the story in the book called The Gift that I'm recalling my childhood during which I lived with my grandmother until I was five years old. Two weeks before Christmas, Nana would be rolling out shortcrust pastry on the dining room table using the same wooden rolling pin she'd been using since she married at 18. The pastry would form the shell of pineapple jam tarts. She'd press out the scalloped edge disc the brass and wooden mould in a monster of a cauldron was pineapple jam. Fifteen hand-grated pineapples had been slow-cooked over a gentle fire every day for a week, inviting the alchemy of pulpy yellow froth into a sticky mass of burnished gold. The air would be a syrupy mist of cinnamon and clove-perfumed vapours that clung to our hair and clothes.
0: I love that last sentence in particular because it is so accurate. Anyone who's, <laughs> really who's ever correct. had to spend hours stirring pineapple jam and getting burnt by its splattering will know that you come away out of that and you are the jam. You, you smell uh, of the spices pine- and the pineapple. You are one.
2: With the jam, yes.
0: <laughs> what does food mean to you as a frame or a launch pad for your writing?
2: For this book in particular, I was going through... Um, I think a very significant time in my life in which I had come to realize that I really did not have very much culture, Eurasian culture in Kapuzi. And this made me... Well, the Trigger event was kind of hilarious and tragicomic. It was a New Year's Eve party and one of my childhood friends, who is also Eurasian, she showed me her iPhone and there was a photo on it. And there were three dishes. They were meat dishes. They were brown dishes on white plates. They all kind of looked identical to me. And she said, oh, look, we had this family gathering last night, and we ate these three traditional Eurasian classic dishes. Can you guess what they are? And she expected me to just rattle them off, but I was horrified to realize that I couldn't recognize them, A. And B, even if I couldn't recognize them, no names of dishes were coming to my mind. It was a really low moment. So I decided that I'd have to do something about this, and I embarked on a kind of personal journey to just try and experiment a little bit with my cuisine, just try and look at my mum's recipe book, and dig out these recipes of, a like curry de bao, uh, which is also known as devil curry, and thing, which is another, uh, it's like a chopped up pork dish with also spices, and a couple of other Eurasian dishes, like pineapple tarts. So that kind of was the trigger event for an entire exploration into my culture. And food was the most accessible inroad at the time. And I guess, you know, this is the same with, I think, many cultures for many of us. Uh, our cultures can have a wealth of, you know, tangible know, sort of expressions, art, literature, folklore, music, but maybe some are uh, more intimidating for us to try and access. And maybe some are not so accessible. For example, you know, folktales, we may not be able to access anyone who knows the folktales or is willing to, you know, recount them to us. So food was something that was within my reach. I had my mom's cookbook. I could read the recipes, buy ingredients, and, you know, just, just cook step by step. Yeah.
0: Is it the case that when you were young, you kind of absorbed Eurasian food by osmosis without having it articulated to you?
2: I think that is an interesting theory, perhaps. It could be because when I was growing up, we didn't really eat Eurasian food every day. It was something that was only served, made and served at special occasions. Usually, these were the religious festivals, Christmas, Easter, then sometimes birthdays, so we didn't have it every day because a lot of them are quite labor-intensive. They're very much involving grinding lots of spices and cooking things over fires for many hours until the meat is very tender. I don't know about other Eurasian families, but my mum was. You know, she's quite an efficient cook, so she made more efficient meals, which I guess were a little more culturally neutral. Or well, sometimes I think they were more sort of Chinese style or even Peranakan style with a lot more like stir-frying and soy sauce and garlic sort of things. Yep. Yeah. So hence my you know total blanking at three dishes which I was supposed to
0: identify. I've long thought that food is always the first and the best way to enter any culture. And of course, language to me is is the second best way. And so that's what to me makes food writing so potentially exciting because it's the nexus of those things. Just hearing you talk, Melissa, about your mother making not necessarily, specifically Eurasian dishes at home. In Singapore, we are such a multi-ethnic and multicultural society. We have so many strands. We have so many sides to our culture and this always occasions so many discussions about what should our national dish be and what best represents Singapore food-wise. For the moment, I'll leave aside of how valid any of those questions actually are. But can I just ask all three of you what you think about how food helps to define or not to define the Singaporean identity such as it is and, and the Singaporean literary identity?
1: Well, just listening to Samuel and Melissa talk, I was just enjoying how much your writing mythologizes aspects of food that I would otherwise never have articulated to myself. So in a way, I think food is a mirror. It shows us parts of who we are as Singaporeans not just in the usual sense of, oh no, this is this is a certain culture that we want to put a name to, but also the less tangible aspects and the daily experiences of growing up with a certain dish or seeing your mum in the kitchen or experiencing the taste and sounds and smells of the food. But as to whether it defines a Singaporean identity, I think it's got to do with how the notion of being Singaporean has shifted, and expanded and become very nebulous in many ways. And it has that wonderful flexibility in the same way we cook up a storm as well. So I think there is that symmetry going on there. I don't know how the others feel about it.
3: I have a lot of trouble trying to answer this question, I guess, because I don't really think that food is uh, such a central part of a literary identity in Singapore. Mm-hmm. The usual narrative is about all oh, Singaporeans, like one thing that unites Singaporeans is their love for food and their love to eat. But But, I mean, it's like everyone in the world can say that. Like, you go to different countries and they would probably say the same thing. I also want to talk about, like, the place of conviviality in food culture and, like, Singaporean food culture. Okay. I guess if you ask me, like, if there's something special about food to me and to, like, our identity as Singaporean, then then maybe that can be a thing. I'm, like, thinking of people coming together to make popiah, for example. Like, and that's a different kind of conviviality from like other cultures for example something about having hot pot together is also like a conviviality that people strive strive for when they want to eat with friends
0: that definitely strikes a chord with me one of the reasons why i wrote my book the way of kuei was to help people reclaim that act of making kuei together as a family for festivals for special occasions Mm -hmm. and kueis are a unique food in the sense that a lot of them have a reputation for requiring a lot of time and and, and effort. And that's because many of them were usually eaten only once a year, once or twice a year. And the whole family has to come together to make them. And that whole time of making it becomes a process of bonding, of reinforcing family ties, of swapping family stories, and basically retreading your family heritage and narrative so that everyone knows it. And I think as Singapore becomes more urbanized, I think we've lost a little bit of that. And it's always curious to me that we see ourselves as being a food-obsessed people, and certainly we're promoted by the tourism board as being a food-obsessed nation. Mm -hmm. And yet, as Anne says, there is so little literary food writing per se that rises to the top of public discourse or gets called to our attention.
1: I wonder if I could chime in on that. I mean, I wonder if the ways in which we relate to food might need to perhaps be broadened a little bit, because I was just thinking of how there are so many words that arise from our discourse around food that have made its way into other realms. So for example, our da culture or takeaway culture plays into that fast-paced lifestyle that has come to define Singaporeans so much. And as well as a term like economic rise or caifan or nasi padang, the idea of going there and selecting a wide variety of dishes has come to also mean eating quickly but also having a buffet of variety at your hands. There's something in there I think that becomes a way of approaching life almost so that food is a kind of language as it were and even something like the prata to flip your point of view you know has has kind of made it into our, our slang as well. There's something about food that has a certain malleability you don't quite make the same recipe the same way twice when you cook it you kind of cook the moment as well you cook the day as it were so I don't know if that's how we might look at Singapore as well it's not a static fixed entity necessarily.
0: In that sense, food as part of a living culture must Absolutely. be dynamic. Yeah. A culture mm-hmm. must be dynamic to be a living one. And to use a hopefully not too labored metaphor with Singlish, you know, Singlish, what I like about Singlish, and one of the things that enthralls me about Singlish is that it is such a Rojak kind of communication. It mixes Malay words and Hokkien words and things like, like go stan from, you know, go astern and elisions and collisions between words like that. And yet it is such an expressive language. And what a lot of people who sort of examine and pass it often don't mention is that as a mode of communication, it works. Singlish is an astoundingly efficient and creative means of expression. And I feel that Singaporean, food to the Singaporean is a bit like that. It's a little bit Rojak. It's a little bit multifaceted. It has many things in it. And at the same time, it is also... A remarkable way in which we can express ourselves and express our identities. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular genres of writing that you feel are especially suited to expressing Singaporean ideas about food or ideas about food in general? Fiction, non-fiction, poetry, literary non-fiction, cookbooks, little bitty lists on the internet of you know the ten best bakwa, whatever it is. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I don't think there's any limit. And even within the genre of fiction, I don't think it has to be necessarily more realist fiction as well. It could be speculative. We could explore how certain foods in a, say, speculative future world exist as we are familiar with them. Or they could have evolved, taken on different influences and say, like 30, 100 years in the future. So I don't think there's any limit, really, in terms of genre that can lend itself to embracing food.
1: I think there's a lot of potential in creative nonfiction to talk about food. And Chris, as you pointed out at the start, I think there's a way in which we think of cookbooks as in a very functional way. But as you pointed out, it's also a cultural narrative. It's also a way we make sense of these recipes in our life as well, and the kind of histories behind the food. And I think with nonfiction, especially, it has a certain weight in relation to the world, as opposed to fiction and poetry, which have their strengths and they do different things with the subject at hand. But I think because nonfiction makes a claim of factuality, it actually could have the ability to shift our relation to food in a way that's more powerful because food is so present to us and so immediate to us that that's how it might actually intervene.
3: I actually think I've read some really good poems about food. I say this because I think there's something about poetry that, that relies on something kind of beyond reason or beyond rationality. And it's the same thing for food. I think, like when you think about food, it's it's about in instinct. It's about something. I mean, of course, you can talk about food, but there's also like a dimension of that experience that is emotional or like supra-rational, they might say, and
0: bypasses your frontal cortex.
3: It does, and I mean, it, it's also what they call like gut instinct. Mm-hmm. They call it that for a reason. Yeah something about food being able to like poetry being able to um touch you in a way that that you can't really describe fully i would like to
0: draw us back to the present situation in which the world finds itself and and you have a piece in the food anthology which touches about quarantine and covid would you like to share with us a bit from that? And then after that, I just want to throw the floor open to asking how how has life under COVID protocols changed your relationship to food, if it has?
1: This piece was actually conceived of under very odd circumstances because when the pandemic began and it was declared on the 11th of March by the WHO, we, our proofs were actually more or less ready for the anthology, we were almost done, but at that point I was still in the UK I'm doing a PhD at Oxford, so I was actually back serving my stay-home notice in a government designated facility, that just means a hotel I think and I felt I had to write something and the other editors and our publisher felt, you know, this is a a moment in history that might hopefully never repeat itself. So why not write something? And so this is how the piece Makan again came about. Mm. And it was actually inspired by a piece titled A Letter to the UK from Italy by the Italian novelist Francesca Melandri. Mm-hmm. And in that piece, she talked about how, and I think we remember those horrible pictures of how the coffins were just piling up in Italy. And it was a letter to the UK saying that if you do not guard against these things. These things could very well happen. But one of the things that she took comfort from was the fact that she cooked three times a day. And I think in COVID times, many of us were baking sourdough. We were rediscovering recipes. We would be snatching bread flour in the aisles of the supermarkets. So that's kind of where this piece (laughs) came about. So the makan again is kind of like the eat again, the the routine of eating. I don't know if I could just read just like a couple of paragraphs to give a sense of, of that strange moment in history. Occasionally, there are dark moments where I wonder what will happen when the lockdown begins. Will social order break down and these meals stop coming? Down the dark well, this is a faint echo of makan, which I know as a word that must be used only in company. You makan already? Sudha makan? Later, where are we going to makan? Makan is a plan, a place and a memory. And here in self-isolation, makan is impossible, only corona makan as a dwindling of the hours. The survivalist streak in me emerges strongly, honed from years of commemorating Total Defense Day in school with food and water rationing exercises. In the background, documentaries of the Japanese occupation are screened wailing with air raid sirens. My peers and I eat our allotted sweet potatoes, reflecting not on our hunger, but on what we would eat next, most likely a hot dinner at home. On social media today, we chide each other for panic buying, but the fear of not having enough has deep roots. This is, after all, a country where scarcity is the default mindset despite immense wealth, and where we constantly emit predictive static to find out where the best eats are, and if there are enough parking lots at the mall we'll visit in an hour. Will social order break down under lockdown, I wonder? Already, the restaurant industry is tottering, and food businesses are making drastic changes to switch to an online model. Will we survive without being able to eat at our beloved coffee shops? Perhaps tomorrow my meals will not be delivered and I will have no choice but to take my valuables and the bread rolls that I've stowed away and emerge trotting quickly and quietly in the direction of my neighbourhood, past shuttered shops and the open boot of a car filled with abandoned toilet rolls. In these perilous times, no one will emerge from home, even for the best bakute. And I think history has proved me wrong because someone did break SHN to eat bakute. I think that's, that's <laughs> that's I think, you know, common knowledge. So that was the piece. And like speaking to that survivalist streak in us, I think, in the face of COVID, I think that was what emerged strongly.
0: How strange was it to have meals just delivered to you like that during the period?
1: Oh, I must say they were sumptuous meals, but it was strange. I think it was the only that I looked forward to because it was the only input to my room in, in a way but very strange I think not being able to decide or to make or to have any say over what I eat ate. but it was great food
0: <laughs> I have to admit I'm one of those who has been baking sourdough during lockdown and there is a, a really thriving online sourdough community I have found Sam has COVID changed your e- eating patterns at all?
3: Oh yeah definitely I also had a similar experience to Anne's. I also did a stay-home notice and and to add on to what Anne has talked about there is also like a weird a weird moment when they knock on your door to tell you your food is here and and like occasionally open it and see them or see the hotel hotel people like <laughs> running away in their full gown <laughs> <laughs> with your like hot like economical rice on the on on like you? a makeshift yeah. table, and occasionally you also get like you might see your stay at home neighbor from the hotel room next door in a nightgown. So yeah, it's a very odd sense of community.
2: Honestly, actually, I think the whole COVID experience and our specific Singaporean experience of buying a lot of takeout food and having a lot of food delivered to us, which is yes, a really wonderful convenience. And I marvelled that we could sort of indulge our taste buds as much as we could during the lockdown with all these uh, food panda etc. deliveries. But I think honestly, what struck me very much was the amount of disposable waste we generated because of all these food deliveries, because of the pandemic. And I was very, very dismayed. And I actually made then a conscious effort not to order delivery. I did not order delivery once. (laughs) And I still have not because I feel really strongly about that. Yeah, for me, what I'm taking away is a sharper consciousness of, I think, how food and our consumption of it doesn't just exist in a vacuum of gratifying our own taste buds. There's a very long chain of consequences and I think, yeah, it, it helps me really try and be more mindful of that.
0: Now that you say that, it occurs to me that actually a lot of contemporary food writing and especially recent food writing, but not necessarily even that recent if you think about people like Wendell Berry, a lot of food writing in the West is about connecting humans with the planet and the environment and the world and placing humans within that frame and addressing things of seasonality and ecological consciousness and that kind of thing. Whereas a lot of the food writing that I see explored in books like Food Republic and various Singapore fiction strains is more about food as a means of personal expression rather than connecting it to the wider world. Does anyone have any thoughts on this?
2: I think that might be a function of many of us in Singapore who do not have such a direct maybe relationship with nature. As a function of us being, yeah, this small, tiny, urban, or normally, basically, we don't have...
0: We import most of our food. Of
2: countryside. <laughs> yeah, and, and the kind of jungle we do are like, well, yes, they're not exactly very welcoming tracks and it'll be eaten alive by uh, fire ants and things like that, or, you know, shot because it's a military training ground. Um, so I, I think most of us kind of live a very strange existence compared to many other human beings in other countries where it's normal to go for a hike in actual countryside, not in a park, not on a paved path. So I think whether and to what extent we are conscious of this, I do think it plays a significant role in how conscious we are of ourselves being part of the biosphere.
1: I was going to chime in and say, yes, there's something about our relationship to the earth and to the land in Singapore that's cemented over, because you don't see where the food is grown, where its sources are, and yet we have an abstract term called food security to kind of ring fence it almost. But I wonder if this is, if Singaporeans at some level subconsciously balance it up with an awareness of the way food can be prepared in a very artisan way. I think in COVID times, so many people have tried their hands at making food, that there's a certain labour that becomes apparent around the crafting of a dish. There's a lot of learning and thinking and finding out about where our flour comes from or where our eggs come from. But also I think down to the level, we're seeing a rise in like say third wave cafes where people want to find out where their beans are from, for example, and, and what happens along that Whole chain of food coming to us too and I don't know if it really brings us closer to the earth it just brings us closer to the source of the commodity chain almost I guess that's part of living in a port city you know which is an identity we've never quite shared and I don't think we will so actually
3: I totally agree with what Anne has said there's not much thought given to where food comes from and that is very much linked or connected to Singapore being a port city Yeah, and that was at the back of my mind when I was writing my collection because I was wondering about all these... thinking about like where an egg just like sitting on my kitchen table, like what is the the causal chain that led to its being there. It got me thinking about how the supermarket is... we don't really see it that way but it's a kind of miraculous space (laughs) where food just appears from all over the world and they get labeled as such. Then they are categorized according to geography, like this is the Japan food section. They are categorized according to, into organic, non-organic. So there are all these questions of value that come into play, I think, in a space like that. And speaking as a writer, I find it very hard to talk about it in an interesting way. I had some poems that I had to take out because they were like too dry to be left in the collection. I guess they paid too much attention to to this causal chain or the chain of production that would be better off as an essay as opposed to a poem.
0: I want to leave you all with this thought that um, it has been said that uh, a true religion should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. And I think if you delve deep into Singaporean food writing, you will find plenty of both impulses. And with that, I want to thank everyone who joined me on this podcast today. Samuel Lee, Anne Aung, Melissa De Silva. We've had a great time chatting and sharing. And I personally am quite hungry after all that. Thank you for joining us today. Making a Scene is produced by Esplanade, Theatres on the Bay, Singapore's National Performing Arts Centre. Our theme music is from More Than We Know, from the album Sea Monster by the Steve McQueens, a band supported by the Esplanade under the Mosaic Associate Artists Initiative. Look for more episodes of Making a Scene at esplanade.com slash offstage and on Spotify, Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for more inspiring conversations with art makers.